Good morning, church. Uh, The first reading that we have today is from Joshua chapter 7, reading up to chapter 8, verse 8. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted, and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off, cut off, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he is, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 
and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel with them took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Our next reading is uh, Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. And our next reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let them who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I, write, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, hello everyone. It's great to be back here at church rather than in the basement of my house. It's good to actually see real people here rather than preaching to a lot of boxes, which I was doing uh, when I was preaching the last two weeks. Uh, we're continuing on our sermon series in Joshua. Uh, we're pretty much in the middle of it now, uh, and we'll be covering some pretty big chunks uh, from here on in. Um, so do try to read uh, ahead beforehand, uh, and obviously I won't be able to cover every issue that's being brought up, but Steve and myself will continue to focus on the main point of these chapters. Um, please keep your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 7 and 8. Um, I'll be referring to some of the verses uh, and reading them out, but other times uh, I'll just be referencing them and you can follow them up on your own uh, and be a good Berean that checks out these things for yourself. Um, it also helps for you to have an outline in front of you. It helps you to take notes, so uh, please do make yourself available for that from the church website or Facebook page. Um, please join me now as I pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, and through your word, we, we know your character and your ways, that you are faithful and mighty, as we've seen so clearly uh, in Joshua so far. We thank you so much for the amazing privilege of being in covenant relationship with you through your Son, our Savior. And we pray today that as we read these chapters, uh, we would be um, led by your Spirit to truly want to live in obedience to you as your children. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week in chapter 6, we saw that Jericho has fallen as easy as you like. Right? The, the account of the fall of Jericho is as if it was nothing. Uh, and you kind of expect from this point on that things would just be uh, an easy ride uh, into the promised land, taking every city as they go. You expect for things to be smooth sailing uh, from here on end. But in the space of one verse... One verse, chapter 7, verse 1, we see a problem. 
the problem of one man being faithless and the entire nation of Israel having God's anger bearing down on them. Right? One man's sin, and then God's anger bears down on the entire nation of Israel. And the issue of personal sin, personal sin and corporate impact um, enters into the picture. Right? One sin, corporate impact enters into the picture. Now let me ask you, uh, how do you normally think about your personal life? Right? How do you normally think about your personal life? It's very telling that we often call our personal lives our private lives, don't we? It's my business, what I do. At most, it's just between me and between God. Have you, have you heard people say that? Have you yourself said that? It's, it's my business, and if anything, it's between me and God. Uh, who are you to talk to me about my private life and my personal choices? Now, what I do, what I do matters to me. But what I do also matters to all of God's people. That's something we're going to see very clearly and very strongly today in this passage. My faithfulness or faithlessness, my obedience or my disobedience, absolutely matters for myself, but also for others, for the church. As God's people, each of us bear God's holy name, and God won't allow his honor to be trashed by his people. As God's people, each of us belong to God's holy family. Sin is never just personal. It impacts others. It contaminates others. It, it's contagious. And so sin matters personally, but corporately as well. Now, Joshua chapter 7 and 8 is pretty long. Uh, and, but it's clear, I think, to see what the point of these chapters is. And the point is that defeat or victory defeat or victory, is determined by faithful obedience. Disobedience leads to defeat and destruction, whereas obedience leads to victory. That is the clear contrast between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And the purpose is that we need to walk away today from these chapters of God's Word to see our absolute need to be obedient, really obedient from the heart to God, both for our own sake but also for the sake of others. Right? We need to be absolutely convinced of our need for obedience to God for our own sake and for others. Now, let's get into chapter 7. Things have been going well, haven't we? Hasn't it? Since the start of Joshua. Uh, the faithfulness of God has been in full display as we began this book. His mighty hand bringing them through the River Jordan. His gracious gift of Jericho into Israel's hands. But then chapter 7, verse 1. Sin enters the picture as it sadly always does, to derail and to destroy. Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now you just have to flip back to chapter 6, especially verse 17 to 19, to hear the clear command from God. All of the treasures of Jericho were to belong to the Lord, to be stored in his treasury. However, one man, Achan, <coughs> took some of these devoted things for himself. It was a betrayal of trust. And we are told that the anger of the Lord burned against all of Israel. Now, it raises the issue, doesn't it? One man's sin infected and impacted the nation as a whole. Now, this concept is not something that we easily understand or that we easily accept. But we kind of already have seen this before, haven't we? With Adam, the first man, 
One man's sin impacting all of humanity. And just in the past week, in these COVID-19 times, we can see how the sin of one or, or two people can have a massive impact on many, even all. Right? Even though it was two women, two young women who were infected, it feels like the whole city of Brisbane and Logan, and perhaps even the whole state of Queensland, has been touched by their actions, contaminated by what they have done, drawn into the choices that they have made. And there is an urgency by everyone to want to investigate them and deal with the issue before it gets really, really serious. But we're already involved, aren't we? And so I think we get it, don't we? When we're told that Achan broke faith and the anger of the Lord bore that on Israel, I think we're starting to be able to understand how one person's actions can impact everyone. Now, we the readers, at this point in chapter 7, verse 1, know the problem of Achan and his sin, but Joshua doesn't yet know that this is going on, right? And so Joshua moves on with the next city, I, as before, he sends spies into the city to check it out, and then these spies come back with a report. And, and this time, I is a, a lot smaller as a, as a nation, compared to, uh, as a city, compared to Jericho. And so the spies say to Joshua, well, we, we only really need a few fighting men, 3,000. Right? The total force of Israel was, was in the tens of thousands, but 3,000 will do, right? The rest can just put their legs up and have a rest. This will be easy peasy, lemon squeezy, Okay. So, uh, we're expecting an easy win. Smaller city, Jericho fell, like with no real battle at all. It should just be an easy fight, isn't it? But they didn't win. 36 were killed, 36 more than at Jericho. And they were forced back in retreat. Now, can you imagine Israel at this point? They would have been in a total shock. What, what just happened, right? It, it, and we told in verse 5 that, that now it was their heart that was melting. Do you remember back in chapter 5, verse 1? It was the kings of Canaan and the Amorites that, were, that had hearts melted, but now it's Israel's hearts that's melting. And we see in verse 6 that Joshua and Israel's elders, they mourn in their defeat. Remember, Joshua has no idea about Achan. And so he cries out to the Lord God in verse 7 to 9, Why have you done this to us? We, we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan River where things were great. We had won battles there. We should have just stayed there in that beautiful piece of land on the other side of the river. It just sounds like the complaints that Israel had made in the wilderness that, 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 that led to that generation perishing, didn't it? It sounds like a, a, a common complaint we've heard before. But Joshua's complaint has at its heart a concern for the honor and the reputation of God. Have a look at verse 8. <clears throat> Joshua 7, verse 8. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now Joshua says, right, our, our defeat will bring you shame, God. It will, it will be a humiliation of your name, of your reputation. But you see, it isn't the defeat. It isn't the defeat that brings God shame and destroys God's reputation, is it? It's sin. It's God's people cheating on God, being unfaithful to God. It's God's people effectively spitting in God's face, by being disobedient 
to his commands. You see, the Lord is so much more concerned with his people's obedience and with his people's loyalty towards him than he is about victory. He would put up with the lesser embarrassment of being defeated than to put up with the faithlessness of his people. He will not allow faithlessness to continue. And so God responds, and he tells Joshua what the problem is, right? He gives Joshua an insight in that we've already gotten as readers. And he tells Joshua that the charge that he's brought against Israel in verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. You see, in verse 11, Israel's sin is described in three ways, isn't it? Firstly, it's a breaking of covenant. It's about being unfaithful to God. As a, as a husband is unfaithful to his wife, or as a wife is unfaithful to her husband, this is what Israel has done, breaking of covenant. Secondly, it's, it's about desecrating, right? Uh, um, violating God's holiness. Taking what is holy to God for themselves. Right? Spitting on God's holiness. And thirdly, it's criminal actions against God, stealing and lying. Now, oftentimes we see sin mainly as immoral actions, right? It's, it's the right and wrong that we don't do or do. Achan sin, in its superficial level, was simply stealing and lying, right? But when it comes to God's people, sin is always committed against God, against the relationship that we have with God, against the holiness of God. It really means something that God's people are in relationship, are in covenant, are in like a marriage with God. It really matters. All of our life takes reference from this relationship that we have with God. And sin is an insult to that relationship. Now look down to verse 20. We get another insight into sin as we, as we focus in on the issue of Achan, right? Verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from China and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now as Achan tells us what he did, we see the process, don't we? The process of how sin works. The sin of Achan sounds just like the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as they saw, coveted, and took that fruit. Isn't it? Saw that it was beautiful, coveted, desired it, and then I take it. Right? So much of sin is about making good things God's. Right? We, we see something or we see someone as being more beautiful, being more desirable than God. And so then we desire and we want it more than we want God. And so then we chase after it and we take it more than we want to chase after and take after God. And so sin is described here as being about false worship, isn't it? Sin is false worship. The Lord God tells us in the first commandment, not to have uh, any other gods before him, to worship him only. And rightly so, because he is the only true God. 
He tells us not to make idols out of things, not to give value and worship to things that aren't God. But that's sin, isn't it? We say no to God. It's a worship problem. Now, what strikes me most about sin in this passage, I think, is what the Lord says at the end of verse 15. But let me read the whole verse, right? Have a look at verse 15. And he who is taken, who has taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing, an outrageous thing in Israel. You see, sin, it's not a small thing, right? Not at all. It's not just petty theft here. It's not just a sneaky little lie. It's not, well, well no one got hurt, right? So what's the big deal? You know how we often say that, right? If I, if I do a little this, a little that, no one's really hurt. What's the big deal? But you hear what God says. It's an outrageous thing. It's outrageous that Achan, Israel, God's people would sin, would be so faithless to the God who had been so faithful, who had been so mighty to and for them. Right? It's not just a sin that I do in private that just impacts me. Why should it bother anybody else? It's an insult to the relationship that we have with God. And that's why Israel cannot stand before their enemies, because they no longer stand with God. They are no longer on God's side. They have stopped, in effect, being God's people, and they have decided to become not God's people, like the Canaanites. And so they too now, we are told, are being devoted to destruction if things don't change, just like the Canaanites are being devoted to destruction for their refusal to come onto God's side. Now, God, however, graciously provides a solution for them. The entire nation needs to be consecrated back to God. Now, to be consecrated just means to be made holy again, right? To be set apart, to belong to God again. And the way that they are to do this is to remove the problem, right? To remove the problem, to get rid of the things that are meant to be devoted to destruction. And so that's the cloak that he had taken, the cloak, the beautiful cloak of China, and the silver and gold. But that now also includes Achan and his family. Just as Achan's sin brought the Lord's anger on the entire nation, so his judgment will set aside God's anger from the entire nation. This Achan and his family will have to be devoted to destruction because they have devoted themselves to sin. Now, Achan and all that belongs to him means Achan and his whole family line are removed from the people of God. Now, it's another one that's hard, isn't it? There's a lot of hard things in Joshua, and this is another hard thing. It's hard to accept why Achan and all that belongs to him will have to come under judgment. What did the family do? Now, perhaps it's helpful for us to know that devotion to destruction, while it is an act of judgment, is also an act of God's holiness. It's about setting something apart from God, either to preserve or to destroy, but it belongs to God to do what he, he will do. And the reality here we see in Achan and his family line is that Achan and his family line all belong to God. Right? Life comes from God and all life belongs to God. And so Achan's name and his, his family name, his family line, is being taken back to belong to God. It's kind of the contrast to Rahab, right? where Rahab's faith resulted in her and her family having a future as part of God's people, 
On the flip side, Achan and his family will have no future as part of God's people because of his sin. And so we get to the end of chapter 7. Achan and all that is his have been devoted to destruction. The stain of sin is removed, and so Israel is no longer under the threat of being devoted to destruction. And we hear these beautiful words, the Lord turned away from his burning anger. So chapter 7 is finished, and now that that has happened, things can proceed forward according to plan. And chapter 8 is a long chapter that details the victory of Ai. It is very, very detailed, and which we won't be going into really much at all. Now, as we read this chapter carefully, you'll realize that all of the details point to one main point. And the main point is this. All will be well, all will be well as long as Joshua and Israel does everything, everything according to God's command. Right? All will be well as long as Joshua and Israel does everything according to God's command. As long as they learn from the calamity of chapter 7, of being disobedient and of breaking faith as HN did, they will be fine. Right? To highlight this point briefly, look at a few things in this chapter. Right? I'll just point out a couple of things. Now, it begins in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, with the familiar scene of the Lord giving Joshua instructions for battle. Now, I want you to notice, as you flip back to chapter 7, right, the first few verses, did you notice how that was curiously missing in chapter 7? There is no mention of the Lord speaking to Joshua and Joshua speaking to the people. It was kind of they just acted on their own. But here it begins with the Lord speaking to Joshua and giving him strict instructions. And then in verses 3 to 8, chapter 8, 3 to 8, Joshua gives the fighting men of Israel the battle plan from God. And it begins in verse 4 with Joshua commanding them. And it ends in verse 8 with, You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Top and tail, it's about what the Lord commands. Now, once the battle begins, and the details are just piled on, right, from verse 9 to, to 29, the, the author seems to be at pains to detail every step of this battle, especially Joshua's instructing and Joshua's guidance and Joshua's presence at every step, in every detail of this battle. It is to convey that Israel did everything precisely, purposefully, and obediently to Joshua's every command, which is to say, they did everything according to the command that the Lord gave to Joshua. Now, you can read through, through these details for yourself and, and see that, right? That the emphasis is on the fact that all the people under the leadership of Joshua did everything the Lord commanded. Now, I want to spend a few minutes looking at the final six verses of this chapter, verses 30 to 35. At this point, the battle is over. I has been taken and victory is theirs. And eight, chapter 8, verse 30 to 35 is an important endpoint to this whole section. Now, if you go back to chapter 3, we see Israel has entered the promised land. And then in chapter 5, they renewed the covenant with the Lord that the previous generation had deserted. And then in chapter 6, the first city, Jericho, is given by God with a total victory with divine might and overwhelming power and ease. In chapter 6. Right? So that, that, that's kind of the pattern of, of faithfulness and covenant and victory. And then chapter 7, the covenant is broken and disobedience and faithfulness enters into the picture and disaster results. 
And as we conclude this section, it ends yet with another covenant renewal. The need to see that you're either in covenant or you're out, victory or destruction. And chapter 8 ends with, a, in a way, a, another new start, another renewal of the covenant. And it's clear what's central to this covenant. It's clear what is absolutely crucial when it comes to being in relationship with God, when it comes to being one of God's people. Have a look at verse 30 to 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, can you see, can you hear what is emphasized here? Right, I've tried my best to do it with my voice, but let me try and, and point it out even more clearly. Can you see it, right? All of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded, repetition. The altar built, sacrifices made, just as Moses had said, according to the law that was given by the Lord to him. Then Joshua um, wrote down the law of Moses, and most likely in this context, the book of Deuteronomy, in front of all of the people. Now, I want you to imagine the scene, right? Gerizim and, and Ebal is a very famous place that you should read about in Deuteronomy where the covenant was made before uh, when they got Deuteronomy, right? Just before they entered the promised land. And it's mountains on two sides, Ebal, Gerizim, and we have three million Israelites, right? About this point, it's about three million. One and a half million on one side and one and a half million on the other side, right? Ark of the covenant in the middle, symbolizing God's presence. And Joshua gets out into the middle there, right? not with his electronic tablet right? to type away you know, the 30-odd 30, 30 chapters of Deuteronomy, but, but tablets probably made of clay right? with some kind of writing instrument that is completely ancient because it's right, 1,400 BC or something. And he's writing down these 30-plus 30, 30 chapters that would have taken seriously all day, right? As he you know, dips his ink, writes, dips his ink, writes, let it dry, and when that's finished, all three million people standing aside watching Joshua doing this whole day, then now gets to hear it being read out in full in one sitting. Not a single word of the law did he not read out. When you see a double negative, they're really trying to emphasize that not a single thing was left out, right? Every single word of the law was read out. Now, can you see what's emphasized here? I think it's pretty easy to see, isn't it? 
All of God's people must know all that God has said and commanded. Their faithfulness, their, diso- their, their, their obedience depended on it. Their relationship with God, being in covenant with God, depended on them knowing all of God's word. For the people to continue on in the promised land with God on their side, they absolutely needed to know the law. Their faithfulness towards God will be seen in their obedience to all of the law. Chapter 7 with Achan's disobedience and chapter 8 with Israel's obedience gives us the starkest contrast possible. The point could not be any clearer. Now at this point in time, I don't know how you feel, but at this point in time, I could not not write this section of the sermon and answer the question, well, how is this even possible? Right? Even as I make that point, which is the conclusion of these two chapters, many of us might be thinking, should be thinking, how is this obedience, how is obedience like this even possible? How is it possible to be utterly faithful to God? I do not know uh, a single person who can claim utter faithfulness to God as his people. <clears throat> and we take HN here in, in Joshua 7 as an example, right? He, it's a picture of one man sitting on his own, yet we know that he is a true representative of Israel. The entire nation throughout their history would show time and time again that they are a rebellious, a faithless, a disobedient people. Achan really was a representative of all of Israel. Take, take Adam as an example. The first man, he sinned, and he brought sin on all humanity, but it's clear that his sin is just a representative of what all humans and how all humans act against God. Romans 5 verse 12 tells us that therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? The one person, Achan, represented all of Israel, just like the one person, Adam, represents all of humanity. Now we can be quick when we read passages like this to judge Achan or to judge Adam. Or perhaps we might feel in the last few days a strong judgmentalism against these two women who brought COVID-19 into Brisbane and Logan. But in our own way, all of us are faithless and sinful on many occasions in our own ways. And the question then is, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us? Now, both Achan and Adam the one impacting the many, points us forward to God's ultimate solution in Jesus Christ. A few verses later in Romans 5, it says this, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now there is no hope if it depended on man. There is no hope. But there is hope because it depends on God. It depends on God becoming a man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was perfectly faithful and unfailingly obedient. His obedience qualified him to be our sacrifice, our substitute. He was devoted to destruction on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of God's wrath and judgment. And in doing so, he absorbed 
and turn away God's anger that rightfully belongs to us. Just as Adam and Achan had such a huge impact on the group that they represented, so Jesus has an even greater impact on the group that he represents. And he represents those who put their trust in him. In Jesus is the victory that truly matters, right? The overcoming of our sin, the turning aside of God's anger, the securing of an eternal covenant, eternal relationship with God that can never be broken as long as we keep trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in Christ, the fear of this kind of A-chan-like destruction is taken away, right? This is not a fear that Christians ought to have, that in one sin we would be destroyed, But the destruction of Christ for our sinful disobedience reminds us of the seriousness and the severity of sinful disobedience. Do we get that, right? If Jesus, the Son of God, had to pay for our sins and take on God's anger, it shows us the seriousness and the severity of any disobedience. Do we get this? Because the consistent message of the New Testament to Christians is this. True faith is seen in a deep commitment to obedience. True faith is seen in a deep commitment to obedience. Ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin is evidence, very, very worrying evidence, that you're not truly safe. Saved. That your faith isn't true. That you aren't actually in covenant, in relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, you might not get struck down like Achan did, But on the day of judgment, you might be turned aside and you might find that you're being devoted to destruction. If you're someone walking directly in disobedience against God every day, if you're outrageously living such a disobedient and unholy life that mocks God, you are in a bad, bad place. And I really hope that you will realize this and come to your senses and repent before it is too late. This is a strong message, but it is the message of God's word that we have to take our faithful obedience to God seriously, that we don't so easily, so unrepentantly just spurn him on a daily basis. Now, all that being said, I do want to give a word of warning and encouragement to those who have a particularly tender conscience, right? The people who who are constantly worrying with every little sin, whether they are right with God or not. Now, this is not for you. The fact that you have a tender conscience, the fact that you worry about your sin, that it bothers you all the time, and that you're fighting it daily, even though you might feel and experience failures, but you're, you're constantly trying to get up and fight against it by the grace of God, trusting in Jesus, then this isn't for you. You are not outrageously sinning against God. That tender conscience, that desire to keep pressing forward, is evidence that obedience is important to you. and It is an evidence of true faith. And press on. Don't ever stop fighting against sin. That is often one of the greatest evidences that obedience to God and our relationship with God, our faith, really matters. Now, let me finish by talking more about our personal obedience and our corporate obedience, right? The last two application points, personal obedience and corporate obedience. Now, the first thing about personal obedience is this, right? Obedience is driven by conviction, 
Obedience is driven by conviction. Now on the positive side, is being convicted that obedience is something that the Lord truly deserves. And it's also convicted that it's actually best for us. That obedience isn't just a chore or a list of things we have to tick off, but that really God deserves our obedience because He is mighty, He is faithful, He is our creator, He is our savior, He is good. It's being convinced that it is the best way to live in obedience to God's word, that it is joy in life. Now, on the negative side, it is to be convinced that disobedience is an outrageous thing, an outrageous thing to do against God. It's been convinced that, that disobedience and sin isn't just some small thing that no one really cares about, that God doesn't really care about. No. To see that sin and disobedience is an outrageous thing against our good and holy God. Now, you can never really obey God truly by going through the motions, can we? Obedience is not simply rule-following ticking boxes. Obedience has to be motivated by something deep, deep down inside. It has to be motivated by a true belief from within about who God is and and what life is like. It's really being uh, sure that there is a real relationship with a holy God. And it's about a desire and, and a reason to want to live to please God. Obedience has to flow out of that kind of a heart. Now, the second thing about personal obedience is that obedience is driven by knowledge. Obedience is driven by knowledge. How can you possibly obey a God that you don't know? How can you possibly obey God if you don't know His commandments and His instructions and His wisdom and His morality and the reason why those things are the way they are? We see in chapter 8, Joshua wrote down the law, and then he read it all out to the people of God. It wasn't just for show. It wasn't just some religious ritual, you know, that he went through the motions with. It was so that the people of God know the word of God. But it's also clear that it's it's not just head knowledge, is it? When knowledge meets conviction, it leads to true understanding and a willing, loving obedience. Right, when knowledge and conviction come together. Now, I've got some homework for you to do in terms of a personal application and follow-up from this point, and that's to read Psalm 119. Read Psalm 119 during the next few days, and you will see a guy who is pursuing personal obedience, conviction and, and, and knowledge pressed together, All right, conviction and knowledge being pressed together that results in obedience. All right, read Psalm 119. It's a beautiful picture of how the Word of God is not just knowledge, but married with conviction, it leads to obedience. Finally, let's finish with a word about corporate obedience. Right? A word about corporate obedience. How you and I live our lives matters to the whole church community, to the whole Christian community. Because firstly, God's honor, God's honor is at stake. Being a child of God isn't just a personal thing. It is deeply personal, but it is not just personal. Right? To be a Christian isn't just to have a first name. Right? I am Christian. It's not just to have a first name, I am Christian. No, Christian is a family name. We are Christians. We are from the Christian family. Right? We bear the family name, each one of us. So our names really are Christian Christian. You know, there's a politician called Grace Grace, right? But all of us are Christian Christian, right? Some of us already have a Christian name called Christian, 
you know, good for you. Uh, but for the rest of us, we also have that name, right? Yeah, so, you know, so we, we get that name too. But we, it's Christian first name, yes, personal. But it's Christian last name, family name. That's who we are. And so when I sin, I sin bearing the family name. And I bring shame to Christ, the name that this family bears. There is a very real sense that my sin isn't just my own business. It isn't just a private matter. It's a family matter. Secondly, corporate holiness. Our corporate holiness is at stake when we sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul deals with a sexual sin that was happening in the Corinthian church, and he tells the church to deal with the sinner, to deal with the sin. Why? Because he tells us in, in, in verses 6 to 8, you can read that on your own, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 to 8, that sin is like yeast that spreads throughout the whole dough and has an impact throughout the whole body. Right? Sin that isn't called out, that isn't challenged, that isn't dealt with, sends the message that sin is okay. It's tolerated around here. And, and soon others will be led to think and to behave in the same way. A compromise, a folly, a sin of one person then becomes a compromise, a folly, a sin of many people as the example is set that isn't being corrected. So Paul says, cleanse it out. Deal with sin of individuals in the church. Now, now this isn't like a witch hunt, right? It's not like every sin that everyone ever commits that we hear about, you know, it, it, it's, it's condemned from the pulpit and then it's plastered on the church website and announced on Facebook, right? That's not what it means. It really depends, I think, on the kind of sin and the influence of the people doing that sin. If you read the New Testament, you know there is a time and place for a church-wide discipline. Especially if someone like me or Steve sins in a public way, it has to be from the pulpit and perhaps even from the website that we announce it and that we denounce it. But for most situations, for most situations, it would be a one-to-one -one chat or perhaps a, a few-to-one chat. Now, because we all sin, we should all expect to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be disciplined when we sin. We, we should expect that it's something that we'll experience multiple times if we are those who in fact continually sin, which we do. We should expect people to help us point out our sin, correct us, perhaps even rebuke and discipline us. Now we would hope for it to be done lovingly, but even if it isn't as, more, as loving as we'd like it to be, it is still our responsibility to have people point out our sin and deal with it. It is our responsibility to hear, lovingly or unlovingly, in a way it's, it's on them how the people speak to us, but it's on us how we deal with our sin. Our personal life, our obedience, isn't just a private matter. As God's people, each of us bear His holy name. As God's people, each one of us belongs to His holy family. So we must take obedience with absolute and utmost seriousness. Let me, let me pray that we would pursue this with conviction and joy, that we would find the reason why we want to honor God with our obedience and honor each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you that in your word, you show us the seriousness of obedience. Please help us to see first and foremost why it is that you deserve our true worship. Why it is that loyalty and faithfulness shown to you through obedience to your commands, to your instructions to live wisely in your ways is the way that we as your people ought to live. Please root out and weed out and take away all those wrong thoughts that we have about obedience, that it is onerous and that it is boring or that it is to our detriment or that it is just a plain burden. Help us to not see it like this. Please, by your Spirit, fill us with a proper vision of who you are, of who the Lord Jesus is, reasons why we we ought to be loyal and why we want to be loyal, why it is a joyful thing to be obedient to you. At the same time, we pray that you help us see why sin and disobedience is such an outrageous thing to do against you. You have so amazingly been faithful and gracious and merciful and mighty to us and for us. You are our great and good creator and savior, redeemer. Please help us to honor you, honor this covenant, this relationship that we so graciously have. Please help us to see also this concept of the one for many, that the one does represent the many because we're all alike. But in Christ, the one, Jesus Christ, in his obedience, so amazingly gives us salvation, that your sin and anger can be turned aside because he was devoted to destruction for our sake. And in seeing Jesus, help us to see the absolute importance of obedience, both for our own personal godliness and honoring of you, but also in the way that it impacts the people around us. We grow up in a very individualistic society where we think that our private lives are our own business, or perhaps that it even just involves us and you, and that's it, and we don't want people butting in. But humble us, we pray, to see the truth, that our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts, our attitudes, the way that we, we live in immorality, perhaps engaging in so-called smaller sins of telling white lies or gossiping, or perhaps in greater sins of sexual immorality and, and, and stealing, or perhaps even just a, a way of life which shows that we put you second, that we're chasing after career or consumerism or the ways of this world. How all these sins has an impact on the people around us. It has an impact on our family, our children, our friends, our siblings, Our church family is impacted by every single thing that we do. So please help us to be open to their correction, their rebuke, and discipline. Please humble us so that we would take our sin individually and corporately seriously. We pray this, that we might be a a church that truly lives in covenant with you, in obedience to the Lord Jesus, in honor of your name. For this we pray in Jesus' name.